Hello, lovelies. Welcome to the Fat Joy Podcast, where we talk each week about how to flourish in an anti-fat world. I'm Sophia Apostle, a fat person and professional coach who loves talking to other fat people about what it's like to live within oppressive systems that marginalize our bodies and how we still dare to have the audacity and courage to reach towards our collective liberation and embrace our joy. Please know this is an adult content podcast, so there will be swears. We will be talking about harms we've experienced, and we will be rebelling against diet culture, anti-fatness, ableism, racism, etc. If you'd like to support the Fat Joy podcast, please check us out at patreon.com slash fatjoy. Oh, and I'm so glad you're here with us. Enjoy. Hello, lovelies. Welcome back to the Fat Joy podcast. I am thrilled to be chatting with Vicki Bellman today. Um, I actually had been following Vicki on Instagram, which I feel like I say about so many of my guests. Instagram is my my place of finding like-minded people. Um, and Vicki does something we'll talk about a little bit later, but I wanted to mention, because that's how I found her, this... Um, these videos where she talks about uh, people that she is paying attention to. And actually, I think, Vicki, when you mentioned the Fat Joy podcast and yours, I think you were at a beach or something. It was like a really beautiful setting. Maybe you're um, on holiday. Yeah. Um, and and then I started watching them more closely. And I was like, oh, this is amazing. This is an amazing resource list. I was so honored to be like, get a shout out. Um, and you also do something called the Fat Bubble Newsletter. So we'll, we'll definitely talk about that too. But um, I love the work that you're doing. So why don't you tell us a little bit about who you are in the world and what you do? Thank you. Yeah. Um, so I'm a, uh, my name is Vicky and I'm a therapist. Um, I work from uh, Kent in the UK uh, with people around the world. That has been, I suppose, the positive of the last couple of years <laughs> that I feel that instead of people going to their closest therapist, they're going to their best fit therapist. Yes. And yes. when you work in a niche way like I do, that is, um, that's a good thing. So it's, really uh, lovely. So I kind of uh, go around the world from my little workroom here in Kent. Um, and I mainly work with um, disordered eating, eating disorders, trauma um, from a non-diet perspective, um, a fat joyful perspective, um, and, uh, and uh, I suppose weight neutral is, is all tied up in that, but certainly you know, um, thinking about recovery without the numbers. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 Beautiful. Um, oh, I'm so excited to dive into disordered eating and dis- disorder eating disorders with you. But I want to start by asking my favorite question, which is what is your relationship with journey towards the word fat? I I think that my relationship with the word fat um, probably started the way that most people's did. It was something to be scared of. It was something that um, it is the first um, insult that is wielded against you. If yeah. you're in a bigger body, you know that it's the first thing that someone, a stranger, 
would shout at you, for example. Um, but for me, the reclamation of that word, I think it started with Jess Baker's book. I think that was the first one I read. Yeah, What um, No One Tells so, Fat Girls. Yeah. That yeah. was my I, that was my big one, too. Um, yeah. I was like, oh, hang on, someone's speaking to me? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> what yeah. do I know? And it turns out I didn't know loads, you know. Um, so that and then Virgie's book, uh, You Have the Right to Remain Fat, which is my one that I go on about all the time. That's my really important one that really um, just felt like someone built um, a protective um, wall around me, but not a wall that was keeping stuff out, but just a, a just ring fenced my identity for me and was like, you can keep this. And it's so it's okay, and in fact, it's something that we could celebrate. Yeah. Yeah. So I just that was for me. Those two, those two books were the ones that really brought the word fat home for me and for my body. Yeah, and I'll include. I'll, I'll put both of those in the show notes for sure. Because if people don't know about those two books, they they are totally essential reading. Uh-huh. Um, I mean, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I'm curious as you began to celebrate your own, the you know your own fatness, the word fat, and that started to shift for you. I am I'm always really curious about the impact out outward from ourselves. How how was that received by family, by friends? Like was there like when you stop being I the term that we often use is like the good fatty, the one who has that internalized fat phobia and acts certain ways, says certain things. Yeah, the good fatty that turns up with their own Tupperware. Yes. Of, of food. <laughs> oh my God, that's, yes. That's I forgot I, I used head. to do that. Yeah, <laughs> the image I have in my head. And obviously, you know, we can we can talk more about how that doesn't feel good. That doesn't feel good to me that, that people are having to do that. Um, that doesn't feel um, like a safe thing to have to do. Mm-hmm. Um, how is it received? Generally very positively in my experience because I think I was already pretty outspoken before and so it wasn't a surprise that I was being assertive (laughs) I think for me it was another thing that I was asserting um and I am lucky that I have a supportive family supportive friends but it was a relief to me um do you know what it feels like to me when I use the word fat neutrally about myself? It's like I'm sitting across the table with someone and it's like I imagine reaching over and touching their hand and saying, it's okay. I know. <laughs> <laughs> I know I'm fat. We're okay. It fat. doesn't have to be have a to thing. Yeah. We don't have to pretend anymore. I'm going to stop wearing peplums. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> My version of that is baby doll shirts. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I'm gonna stop wearing those. Yeah. I'm gonna stop wearing the swing dresses and I'm gonna be fat and it's okay and I know and I'm not gonna pretend anymore. You don't have to pretend either. And you can hear my voice, it's actually a really gentle, really tender, real moment of intimacy for someone when you know, when I can just be reach over and be like, I'm fat, it's okay. Um, and we're not scared of it. Yeah, that's yeah. actually beautiful because it's having me see this in a different light, actually, where in a way it's inviting someone to witness you and be witness and you get to then experience 
being witnessed in a much more authentic way as opposed to, I love that you mentioned peplum tops, like these tops that skim away, which I still wear a lot of. This is something that I'm kind of in my own journey with my belly right now because it's changed quite a bit. But like where the other day I went out wearing quite a form fitting, like you you could see my belly. And I was like, I'm really working to be okay with this. And it was comfortable and I felt great. And there was an honesty and a being able, even just by strangers, I took my steps onto a movie and it was like, even just walking through the lobby of the movie theater, people looking, I don't, I don't make any assumptions about I think most people are just wrapped up in their own brains most of the time. So I don't think anyone's looking at me a certain way, but I just was very aware of that they get to see me in an authentic way. They get to see my body as it is, and I get to be seen that way as well. That's really powerful. Absolutely. I described this um, with some friends the other day interestingly actually from a different perspective it was from a race perspective um and i was talking to them as um like british east and southeast asian people and i was saying it's really special to me when someone says to me look i have this really special and tender part of myself and i really need to be able to trust you around that are you going to be okay with that and me to be able to say yes i will do whatever I can to be safe around that really tender part of you. And then in kind of reciprocity, I get to do that with my fatness in them. And um, and I get to say, look, this is my tender part. Can I trust you to be safe around that? And they say yes. yes. So for me, yeah, it's about different identities and what are our vulnerable parts, what are our safe parts, but then like where is our intimacy, right? Where am I going to be truly seen here and where are we going to be able to rest with each other yeah and again it's striking me that this is just such a truly human to human moment when you can do that Mm -hmm. absolutely i think most of my work i would describe i've realized over the last three four years is about becoming okay with being human yeah and i think most of the stuff that people come to me with the challenges they have eating disorders disordered eating are um are ways to protect us from the vulnerability of being human and that's a very yeah that's a very systems and structures thing yes well because they're designed to make us not feel human exactly 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 every single oppressive structure is is based on that white supremacy uh, capitalism ableism and anti-fat hate all designed to just rob us of our humanity so that they can exploit us and um so for me it's about the act of the art of maybe um becoming human i say to a lot of my clients you know how do we acknowledge that this thing is happening in the world and live as if it isn't Oh my God, that's the question, Vicky. That is the question. How do we hold the paradox of that? How do we hold the both end? Because we can't escape either. No, we can't escape. And we have to look at it if we're going to dismantle it. Yeah. Um, and so how can we do that? And also kind of live a liberated life where it's as if 
it isn't happening. So how can I have all of my fat joy and fat celebration and fat um, future and fat dreams um, and protect them in a world that would prefer I didn't have them and sometimes like violently so. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, that's beautifully worded. Yes, yes, yes. And that's the work that you do with people, which is incredible. That is the work. Yeah. What a gift. It is a gift. It's a complete gift. It's, um, you know, how lucky am I that people will be vulnerable with me um, and that I can be in that position of being safe, brave for someone as much as I can. Yeah. Uh, And so that's what I seek to do in my work is to show up and be brave and be myself and be human. Um, and, uh, and I think again, you know, the pandemic gave us an opportunity to do that. I had like that pandemic fry, you know, that brain fry that we all got and I'd send out like the wrong, um, remember sending out, um, the wrong zoom link or like for the wrong time. I mean, Oh, sorry. I've made a mistake. Yeah. And instead of saying, sorry, my thing was, thank you for accommodating my humanness. <laughs> I love that. <sighs> and so that, that's what I'm trying to do is be human out loud and be fat out loud, you know, unfinished. Unfinished. Ooh, I love that too. Yeah. Oh, I have tears in my eyes just hearing you speak about that because it takes me back to all of my experiences with therapy and where there wasn't that safety. I've never, I've done a lot of therapy, but I've never, well, I have, okay, so I've never had a fat therapist. I've had lots of therapists I've worked with, never had a fat therapist and only really had one who was anti-oppression informed in a way that also included anti-fatness informed and that's my current therapist (laughs) and she's incredible um but i've never had both together someone who was anti-diet who was fat liberation and who was also fat themselves so and i think when you were talking about how you do this it brought tears to my eyes i could really feel the emotion moving through me because i felt how at those points in my life where i was the most where i was most struggling with eating disorder with binge eating disorder was my, what, what I, I think I still have, I don't, it's always kind of there. It's, 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 I live with it. It's, I don't even know the term controlled is not the word. It is controlled. I don't managed. Yeah. Is that the term? Yeah. It feels managed. And yet like, it's like, I can still feel it's part of me. And I've worked really hard not to hate this part of me to understand it, but when I was going through really tough times trying to figure out what was going on for me, even realizing that it was something I could get help with because I just, because I started binging when I was 10, you know, Mm. I think I've mentioned before I, I would sneak in at recess. I think I remember this was before we moved to the States. So I was probably like, gosh, maybe grade four, grade five at break, I would sneak back into the classroom and steal the treats, the snacks out of the lunches of the other kids. Like I did that and I stole money out of my mom's wallet so I could get the bus driver to drop me off before, before we were going, which was my parents' office. Um, so I could go to the grocery store and buy the junk food that the quote unquote junk food, 
Um, that was the label at the time that I was not allowed to eat. So there was restriction. And then my response, because I am a little bit of a rebel, I am, I'm like, like I, I broke into a classroom. I stole money. That was my response, which I, which I actually kind of admire about myself. Not going to lie. I'm like, that was pretty ballsy of me, but it, that, that quality <laughs> of risk taking, um, you know, perhaps now it's obviously in a different direction. I bring a lot of that energy to the podcast, but at the time it was just, I know now it was such a reaction to restriction, to comments, to, I mean, I was 10, 11, 12, like I I didn't know what was going on. I just knew I had this drive, this urge, right? And as I grew older and was figuring all that out, it would have been amazing to talk, to have the therapist who um, just understood in a, more comprehensive way, I think, than the therapists I did work with. So I'm just, I think I'm so glad to be talking to you. I'm so glad there are therapists out there like you. For me, the word is, for me, the word is embody. Yeah. Um, Because it's it's not just that I understand, it's that I embody the thing that really most of my clients are scared of, which I get, you know, and so I, I embody something and I say, look, it really, I'm here to show you that it's not as bad as you think it's going to be. Yes. Um, and that's for all my clients across the weight spectrum because I don't just work with people in bigger bodies. I, you know, I work with people across the weight spectrum. Um, but really, um, you know, the quote I always have in my mind is um, Deb Bargard who said, um, in order to um, prevent eating disorders, we have to make it safe to be fat. Yes. Which for me is, you know, such an important, it's such a guiding thing that I remember. And so I am there saying, look, it's, it's really not as bad as you think it's going to be. And I, and we didn't see that when we were younger. You know, I'm 40 now. Um, and I think back to when I was younger, I didn't see anyone. I didn't see any women. Um, I didn't see anyone, you know, being just okay with their body, being okay with their relationship with food, really, you know. Never. And as you mentioned, that binging that we talk about, you know, binge eating disorder, the term itself is all focused on the binge. Yes. But what you mentioned, of course, is the restriction that came before. And I just, that is, that's the quiet part that I just want to say out loud again and again and again. Because for me, it's two sides of the same coin and it it frustrates me, even the term sometimes. I wish that we had a different term that didn't just look at the binge. Like I I think about pendulum a lot, right? Oh, I love that. Yeah. A pendulum thing. If you're going to hold the pendulum tightly all the way over to one side, it is when you have freedom and access gonna just gonna pound all the way to the other end of the of the scale, um, which is what you did when you had freedom. Yeah, yeah. Run into that storm and buy the chocolate bar. You know? That's so. I hadn't really thought about the naming in that way, but you're so right. It's like though even that term binge eating disorder assumes that oh, it just happens on its own. Like you said, it doesn't. It's like this independent thing that I 
the the language that I would hear and that I would use for myself is like, why can't I quote unquote control myself? And so it was always about my lack in the moment, as opposed to what I know now is, well, mm, there was a series of dominoes that had to happen and that happened for decades that led to. And yeah. there's a lot of control around all the benches. Yes. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Like I'm a, yeah, this is why, this is where the, some of these, um, these assumptions about fat people and eating disorders really frustrates me because it's all bullshit. I'm like, I'm extremely disciplined. I'm extremely controlled. That is how I was able. I mean, you have to be extremely disciplined and controlled to sneak into, you know, <laughs> a classroom. Oh, you know, people coming to me, if I only had more willpower, more motivation, like, I can't see how it would be possible to have more motivation. <laughs> Come on. Um, you know, people, um, if we're thinking about diet culture, people returning again and again and again to diet and having the willpower and the motivation to do that and have kind of renewed hope that this one might be the one. That all takes an extraordinary amount of mental um, fortitude, you know, the fact that it doesn't work is because they don't work. You know, that's why you have binges built into them. That's why there are binges built in because binging is an inevitable, you know, um, is often an inevitable response to um, yeah. to restricting access to food. Your body doesn't know that it's not in the desert, you know, without starving to. Absolutely, your body, your body can't fathom that starvation would be intentional um, of the diet and so of course it will it will try and access food when it can because your body is designed for your survival and it might be really inconvenient that that happens sometimes but your body is just committed to your survival and that makes me so I'm just so moved by that about the wisdom of our bodies that are committed to our survival even when we feel compelled to act in these ways because we're told to, because because all our culture just makes it so extraordinarily hard to um, just show up as we are, you know? Well, and it, it, it's so, it's really interesting. I love the way you worded, you know, how can we not have binges? And my sarcastic comment in my head when you said that was, but no, no, it's okay if it's a cheat day, which is of course, the, I think this is a great place to talk about the difference between, because we're using these terms and I'd love to be really clear with people. What is the difference between disordered eating and eating disorders? Well, obviously there is, you know, I guess, you know, in the, in the technical way it would be whether it's diagnosed but I often work with people who are not diagnosed in their eating disorder because I work with a lot of people in bigger bodies and it's really hard to get a diagnosis if you're in a big body. Ah, Do you want to say a little more about why that is? Yes because I think that a lot of doctors would want you to lose weight and by any means necessary and so restriction and on like extremely restricted calorie diets are prescribed yes. to people in bigger bodies. Um, so how can that doctor 
differentiate between what is an eating disorder and what is what is being prescribed by them. Uh, so I think a lot of time um, when these behaviors are happening, because it's, it's a mental health thing, right? It's not a physical thing. Mm-hmm. So malnourishment happens at all sizes and um, and being underweight happens at all sizes. And I feel like those are still such radical ideas. That's not possible. We think about a certain way of looking for an eating disorder. But if you're under the weight that your body would like generally rest at, that's underweight. And if you are eating you know, severely reduced um, calorie diets and restricting, um, you know, uh, you're just as vulnerable to malnutrition as you are at lower weights. So um, for me, it's a spectrum. For me, it's a spectrum. And I I don't really concern myself too much with um, what the difference is between disordered eating and eating disorder because people will kind of go up and down the spectrum a little bit. At, at all points in that, I care about safety. But person I work with, I care about safety. Are they safe in their body? Um, and and if not, kind of what are the risks and how do we manage that? And it won't just be me. Sometimes it will be a team um, of people um, all committed to that person's safety. Um, but how can we make you safer than you currently are? And that is a question that I would want us to consider eating disorder, through disordered eating, through, you know, at any point of scale, I just want to take it so seriously and um, and honour that person's experience because I might be the first person that has recognised their experience as disordered eating or an eating disorder all the time. I might have just thought that they were an unsuccessful dieter or that they were doing what they were supposed to do, um, which breaks my heart. Um, so yeah. yeah, well, unsuccessful dieter, but and that often leads to, I'm an unsuccessful person. Oh yeah, absolutely. Like it's just the way all of this has people feel. And again, I love I I love the way you're talking about it in terms of a spectrum because, mm-hmm. again, you're having me really reflect on my own journey with. Um, with an eating disorder and disordered eating because it it did, there was a lot of movement between when I was actively binging versus when I was trying to diet versus now, which is from a much, like I I feel very healed in my relationship with food now. Um, Oh, that's a beautiful way to think about it. And so I, what I hear you say too is it's not about, the label it's about our do we feel safe within our bodies and within our relationship with food that's actually the better question for me for me it is because again you know and it's not just um body size that is gonna um stand in the way of people getting a diagnosis um race is always going to play a factor in that as well ableism is going to play a factor in that um, education level um, is going to play an 
uh, play a factor in that in terms of advocacy sometimes. Yeah. So there are so many barriers and they're all systemic and they're all um, biased that are going to stand in the way of someone mm-hmm. accessing a diagnosis. So yes, if it's something that is going to validate your experience and you want to pursue that, mm-hmm. I'm supporting you, right? Uh, you know, but we don't need it to honor your experience. Not for me. I love if, if you want to pursue it, I'm there with you. Um, but we don't need it here because, you know, there is, um, there's a, a poem, there's a poem I really love that says, um, it says, if you develop an eating, eating disorder when you're already thin, um, to begin with, you go to the hospital. And if you develop an eating disorder when you're not thin to begin with, you're a success story. And that is such a valuable insight to me. It breaks my heart. Yeah. Um, and again, how can people sometimes even conceptualize that they have an eating disorder? Because either they've been a success story or they have been a failure. But they certainly haven't been sick. Yeah. Um, so sometimes we're not. Sometimes we won't even get to talking about a diagnosis because it just isn't on the radar. We're just dealing with what you're dealing with. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Huh. Well, and it just it also is so. I'm also wondering too if it gets pretty um, mushy because. Everywhere we turn, there are conver- <laughs> I like that grunt. I'm like, oh, here we go. Um, yeah. <laughs> right? <laughs> Is um, our like it's just everywhere about food and diet and cheat days. And here's a lollipop from the Kardashians. My God, that will help you lose weight. And then freaking recently I saw Lizzo last week in Toronto and she didn't say the name Kanye, but she certainly was talking about Kanye's assholery, him commenting on her body and weight. And like, it's just Uh, And then it shows up and then we're told, I just, there's all these compounding factors because then we're told the only way or the way to control your weight is diet and exercise. And we know, again, research knows this is not true. Novo Nordisk and all the other big pharma would have us be lied to. We're actively being lied to. If anyone has curiosity about that, listen to maintenance phase, listen to every episode. It is phenomenal and it will blow your mind and it will take off the blinders. immediately. It's such a great, I'm so grateful to Aubrey Gordon and Michael Hobbs for the work they're doing. Um, Cause I'm not, I just get angry. I'm not very good at explaining stuff. So just go listen to them. Oh, yeah. um, I turn up outside our, our hospitals and our doctors with a loudspeaker. I just play every episode through the windows. <laughs> you know, yeah, I, I love that. Oh, it's so good. And so, but the thing is, I, I don't know. I don't know what the percentages are, but I would probably say 90% of people do not believe that truth. Don't want to believe that truth. It disrupts their way of living in the world. And because you have to completely, you know, it's an invitation really to dismantle your worldview, which is yes. terrifying. And so, 
you know, I really try and make it explicit when people work with me. I try and make it really plain on my website. You know, I care about systems and structures. I care about this stuff and how it impacts you individually. But I really don't want to sign off on the individualizing of your health and your well-being constantly because it's a community thing and it's a social thing and really like individual outcomes of health like you know i just so and that is really challenging and it shouldn't be radical to love yourself and take care of your body um but it is mm-hmm. and often people come to me and they didn't know that they wanted to do that so i try i do try and make it really clear like we're going to get into some stuff here um because it's people's right if they don't want to do that yeah. because it's really scary to dismantle the it world. Is. And that's also why other people find it so challenging is because it's an invitation for them to do the same. So when I show up and I'm like, oh, well, I can just be, I can be really happy in this fat body here. And uh, it, it just doesn't compute. And they would have to do some, either they have to do a lot of mental somersaults to get to where they want to stay, or they have to rearrange some things and that's you know yeah but um the thing with celebrity i will just mention that because it's so true i think so normalized to see a very um, disrupted relationship with food yep and body um you know there is a there is a patreon episode of maintenance space where they talk about that half is bizarre um everything i eat in a day oh um and it's just it's a it's a horror story. It's just a horror, um, and it's just it's put out there um, in mainstream magazines. And I remember that when I was growing up, we had I think it was Closer magazine or Heat magazine or something. They would do yes uh, a celebrity food diary, and then there'd be a little nutritionist or personal trainer or someone who would give feedback on how they could. If you sub this for this and sub this for this, I'm like, oh, how do you think we learned about food substitutions? <laughs> you know, reading that when I was 14. I know. Um, the thing I will think, though, about celebrities, and again, this is a Virgie Tobar thing. She, I'm sure, I've never been able to find the source for this. One day, maybe I'll email her and I'll be like, please, will you tell me where you said this? Because I know I had to say it. And I say it to all my clients, but I'll share it here too is she was asked about, I think, Lizzo's um, juice, fast juice cleanse that she did a while ago. Um, no, she didn't. No, right, hang on. Let me let me just go back a second. Virgie Tova was asked about people in bigger bodies in general um, going on a diet or losing weight intentionally. Yeah. And she was. they said to her, you know, what do you think about that? And she said... I have no problem with people wanting to feel less oppressed. And that for me, I'm so grateful for that Mm. Um, understanding because again, it takes it away from the individual behavior, puts it squarely back on the systems and structures where it belongs. That's where the responsibility lies. I have no problem with someone wanting to feel less oppressed than they do currently. And the reason I think about Lizzo is because when it all happened with her and the juice cleanse, that's the voice I heard in my yeah. Ear. She is one of my like fat elders. She lives in my head. <laughs> <laughs> um, that says no. We don't judge someone for wanting, 
you know, um, for living in their body and doing it in public and doing it out loud and wanting to feel like I just have no right to pass comment on that. And I can feel certain types of ways because, you know, she's special to us and um, mm-hmm. it's such a valuable, feels like such a precious thing when we get positive fat representation in the world. Yes. Um, but we care about body sovereignty which means we care that other people do with their bodies whatever the fuck they want to do. Yep. And it's none of my business. Yeah. It's, that's a heart. It's so interesting. I, it's so funny. I'm like, I agree with all of that. And at the same time, my heart is so sad about Adele. My heart is so sad about Rebel Wilson. I mean, Fat Amy. I, there's, so it, it is really interesting how we, there's a tendency to take, yeah, it's like, but you're representing all of us. And I I agree with everything you said. And that's actually what my my fullest, wisest self believes. But then I also, I would be heartbroken if Lizzo became thin, quite frankly. Like just, I would, and I have no right to. I totally, I mean, I was telling you before we started recording, I had a horrible experience yesterday where for the first time and for the first time in front of my husband, we went to this restaurant and I could literally could not, fit in the booth. And I had a full shame spiral. And I think, you know, 10 years ago, I would have immediately started dieting. And like, I would have just done that whole thing. Thankfully, you know, I was able to like work through it. He was amazing, got some support from my bestie. Like it just, you know, I was able to, to be with that experience, but there's something about having other people that look like us. It's a, such oh, a, look. I feel the pull. <laughs> oh yeah, I get that completely. But this is one of the reasons, you know, you mentioned Fat Bubble yeah. earlier, which is my newsletter, which I love. Um, one of the reasons why I send it out weekly, I want people to have multiple positive representations of fat people so that we don't feel that scarcity pull yes. of, hang on, you can't take this person away from right. me. You can't don't take Liz out. People are going to do with their bodies whatever they want to do and whatever they need to do to exist in this world. And I I can't, not, you know, not with Lizzo. Um, you know, it's, it's I, I can't do that. I can't do that as a white woman about a black woman's body. I, I can't do that just as a person respecting someone else's body sovereignty. Um, as a as a fat person to fat person, I feel it. And that's why I need multiple representations so that yeah. I can um, not hold on to other people's body stories so tightly mm. that it um, inhibits them. I mean, she but I don't want to inhibit anyone, right? Their bodies are theirs. And, and I, I want them to live as freely as possible. Yeah. Um, yeah. And therefore, we can bring our attention to the systemic, the act where the problems actually exist, too, which is so important. Yeah. Yeah. So I want choices. You know, I'm talking a lot to my, um, to the people I work with about choices. I like people to have options um, when we're thinking about safety. I want people to have multiple safety techniques and um, safety um, practices for themselves. I want people to have multiple um fat elders which is one of my favorite terms you know so that it's not just one person going before us and showing us how it can be done it's like 50 and 100 and 150 people who can teach me what it looks like to live a joyful 
life in a body that looks like mine. Yeah. Oh, I love that so much. What a shift from scarcity to abundance that was that you just took us through. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think that really, I really think that that comes into it, you know, because we're so starved. We're just starved of fat representation. And so, of course, when we see Adele, we're like, yay. Oh, my gosh. And then, of course, we're heartbroken because we've invested so heavily. And the same with any um, person in the public eye in a body that looks like ours, you know, in a body that looks like mine. But yeah, if we can, if we can really be like, actually, I have multiple people that um, are living all their different threads. It's yeah. it's gonna be looser, right? Well, and it just struck me that we then we feel like we are part of a community as opposed to feeling so deeply alone, which is what often happens for people living in a fat body. The number one thing I hear from from people I work with as a coach is, um, is that feeling of aloneness. No one else knows this feeling. I'm the only one. And so I think that's also probably too, why we really cling to the few people that represent us. And so feeling like, oh no, actually I have my community of people and they don't need, I have lots of secret best friends. They don't know that we're best friends, <laughs> but I consider them my best friends on Instagram. And like Aubrey has got right. Oh my God. Aubrey and I have coffee every morning. Like we're besties. She doesn't know. She's a really important flat outer of mine. She's a really, really important flat outer of mine. Um, Yeah. yeah, Some of my, um, some of my community is going to be one way, you know, Mm -hmm. social. Some of it's going (laughs) to be online. Some of it's going to be in my real life. Although I, I don't like to call online, online, for me as a fat woman is it's very real oh my god my fat chat communities i mean i go oh yeah it's it is it's very real we need a better term don't we we need a better term um i so i it's not about real life but i i don't have you're right i don't have a different term for it yet um but i i kind of refer to it as like having a fat village yes a fat village you know, and I need some people online and I need some people that I can physically hold. And um, if, you know, if they're okay with me having cuddles with them and, you know, (laughs) um, I need a variety of connections and I need it in the art that I consume. I need it in the books that I read. I need it in the films that I watch. I need really to see my identity woven into everything which is all right because you know how else do you how else do you walk through this world right oh yes 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 to all of that um i'm so curious and again this is something that i hear a lot from people certainly questions and struggles that i've had is around well three different situations so family social and workplace but let's maybe start with family um how and we can talk about practicalities. Like, I think this is where we can really mine your brilliance and wisdom, <laughs> Vicky is. So how do we handle families that, I mean, there's there can be so much harm that has been inflicted throughout our lives, not intentionally, but um, family members who like, who just didn't know 
differently, who may still not know differently. We're all in the water, so we're all wrapped. Exactly, yeah. So how do we hold safety for ourselves? Um, to think there's a variety of ways. I think the first thing is, it is a bit of a cliche, but it's a cliche because it's necessary kind of across the board, which is self-compassion. Yeah. So if you're going in and you're recognizing you're not um, colluding with what is said to you as much. You're not being like, oh, well, yeah, actually, that's kind of true. Maybe I should go and um, do this thing that isn't going to be good for me. Um, so the first thing is you know, developing self-compassion. So if there is anything that is said, you know, thinking like around the dinner table, for example, that it feels like um, a disruption, that it's going to really land with you as a disruption rather than confirming what you already mm. believe. So I I really like this is again that bubble for people to have developed or to be in the process of developing their affirmative stuff. You know, um a book in your bag or on your um on your you know your reader, your mm -hmm. electronic um that affirms your identity yeah. um uh download podcast episodes um put together a fat joyful playlist on on your you know on spotify put it everywhere in your own personal digest like what you are going in with so that when these things are said um you have got resources with you that are affirming who you are because sometimes we're going to be able to challenge the person. Sometimes we're going to be like, it's not worth it. I'm not. Yeah. Well, sometimes it will be worth it. And sometimes there's a, like a, a low key way to say, let's not think. I don't want to think about numbers. Come on. Let's tell me this great thing that's happening to you right now. Or let me tell you about this new thing I'm doing or, you know, steering the conversation away. Because uh, sometimes it is going to feel worth doing. I think a lot of people worry um, that it's going to be a confrontation, which I really understand. So I like the idea of people scaling and saying, how can I make this like a level two response? Mm. This is a level two thing that someone's saying to me. How can I keep it level two when I'm responding? If this is a level eight, how do I hit them with a level eight response? <laughs> <laughs> um but to put some light and shade into it, because it always feels like you're going to have to sit down and be like, family, I have an announcement. I've decided that we're not going to talk about weight or, you know, it just feels so yeah. formal and pressured. But actually, how could I imagine it being level two, level three, keeping it low key, keeping it informal? Like, actually, you know, I'm really exploring different ideas and um, oh. I can either talk to you about them or we won't. Yeah, that's amazing. And I'm so aware as I kind of live at level eight, um, it takes such a, a, an amount of self-management to be able to, because what happens, I think I'll speak to my experience, but I, I imagine this is very relatable for people, is a comment will be made. I feel myself be fully activated level eight, and then I need to like self-manage down somehow to a two or a three to be able to respond in a way 
And I mean, it's just amazing when I think about some of the stuff that I've done. Like I have like slammed doors. This is like, I don't know, 10 years ago. I remember a family dinner. Someone said something and I got up. I immediately started crying. I slammed my chair. I slammed the door. Like, because it was so immediately confronting and it feels like you're going, my body is like, we're going to battle. Hold on, people. Like it's immediate, right? That fight or freeze or flight, whatever people have. And, and then I did the flight thing and yeah. It feels like such a risk, such a yeah. trap. Yeah. Well, how do we get, how do we do that? Are there, I know what I've worked on, but like, what are, how do you help people when they have that immediate activation response? How do we get down to a two or three so that we can actually perhaps be in conversation in a bit of a different way? So it's, first of all, it's a practice. It's not something that happens overnight or something like if we were going home tomorrow, um, we would just instantly feel like we could do I wish it was. You don't have the secret to that, Vicky. I'm afraid I don't. <laughs> because if I did, that would be very diet culture and very capitalist. To expect that there is magic. Right? Oh, that's a good way to say that. Yeah. So yeah. actually, it is part of, uh, for me, recovery, liberation, building new worlds, to be like, actually, this stuff takes time. And it's okay. I'm going to practice being patient with myself in a world that is not very good at being patient. So like how, uh, first of all, like what a, what a healing that can be, even though it's sometimes very inconvenient. Um, but in the moment, people are activated. What do they do? Um, I really like having a safety five and I have um, a little exercise on my website and we can maybe link to it in the show notes, um, which is before you go identifying what is your, because safety is not in the body, right? You said you feel it whoosh into the body so we take a sensory and an embodied approach and be like what is your safety smell what is your safety touch what is your safety sight what is your safety hearing thing and what is your safety what's the fifth one that i've missed off uh, smell taste maybe oh taste yeah yeah taste. <laughs> um so so identifying them before you go and and I do it on a hand and then the line you know the lifeline that goes across the hands we write a mantra oh you have something you can say to yourself and you might take yourself off you might excuse yourself and take yourself off to the bathroom yeah and just sit there for a second and be like I'm gonna smell my hanky that I put essential oils on or um or my perfume or whatever it is something that's easily accessible I'm going to um, smell my teddy bear that I bought with me that feels like really comforting and safe. I'm going to promise myself that I'm going to listen to my safety song later or my safety podcast later um, or my safety episode of Shit's Creek. Or, yeah. you know, <laughs> um, I'm going to wear clothes that feel safe and comfortable and like don't feel too restrictive. Um, do you see what I mean? And so we have props, if you like. Um, yeah. They need to be very accessible. So they probably also need to be really affordable. Um, but just things the way you can ground yourself in safety and a mantra to remind yourself, I'm safe in my body, right? Yeah. I love all that. Because it's. I feel like that reinforces the truth, which is 
that it's not about me. You know, those comments come from a place of systemic oppression. They're driven by diet culture. So of course, the people I'm around, unless they've actively done work to divest from diet culture, of course, they believe this. So because I think part of what happens with that whoosh feeling is that it feels like an attack. And so if I can externalize it a little bit. Yeah, well, it is an attack. Um, Because I really recognize oppression as trauma. And trauma means an overwhelming of the system. Yeah. Right. So I'm not, um, I'm not giving like family members a hard time here because we've all, like I said, we're all in the water. So we're all wet. Right. And some people are building their awareness to kind of dry themselves off. And some people are not. Um, but, um, yeah, it, it's, it, it's such a, a whoosh, it's such a visceral, physical response. And of course it is because what we've been talking about for a lot of today is about identity. And it's about like, is who I am okay with you? Like I said earlier, this is a tender part of me. Can I trust you to keep it safe? And sometimes when that's a no, that is a deeply felt thing. And I mean, that takes me to my other thoughts about when people we're talking like about when people go home for the holidays or something, um, is sometimes you're not going to be able to say anything. Mm-hmm. Sometimes you're not going to be able to build the external boundary that you want to build. And so in that experience, I really love people to go in and connect with their own core values and be like, look, that person said something that does not align with my core values, that is not who I want to be, that is not how I want to see this world, that is not what I would want to say. Um, And so I'm just going to reject that as something that does not align with who I am and who I'm creating myself to be as well. Um, Because we can't control everything around us um, and people are still going to say shitty things, either intentionally or not intentionally. Um, And sometimes we can create an external boundary but sometimes it has to be internal. And so sometimes we just have to, and um, for me, an internal boundary is about aligning with our own values. Yeah. 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 That's, oh gosh. Can we, I, it makes me think of, of course, as we're talking about boundaries And we start from that place of internal groundedness. I know for myself, I have set a lot of external boundaries with 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 people. And that was really hard to do, especially with, I mean, I, I, the people that we trust the most can can really harm us, I think, the most. That's certainly been my experience. And so setting external boundaries has been for has been a really important part of my ability to be present with family to say look you know what i love you all and these are the topics that are not to be talked about in my presence we are not going to talk about food we're not going to talk about exercise you are not to ask me about my own body journey you're not to ask me about like i've really been i've had to be very like bold and straightforward and say this is not allowed um, and it was not always 
received. I mean, it's it's funny. I remember there was a time where my mom and I would talk and I would say, mom, this is what it became my own journey of body acceptance and really kind of figuring out my food and my eating. And I said, when we talk on the phone like once a week or every couple of days or whatever it was. And I would say, look, if you ask me about these things, food, exercise, weight, uh, I will, I have to hang up the phone. This is out of love and self-protection. And so if you do that, I just need you to know that's what's going to happen. I think I probably spent two years hanging up on my mom. I'd be like, mom, you asked the question. I've told you, no, I cannot. Maybe two years is an exaggeration, but it took a long time. There were a lot of hangups and but it was the only way I could be in enough of a safety zone for myself to do the work that I had to do. Because every time there was that question, it would just take me, it would almost like undo all the work on myself that I was trying to do. And so that boundary felt like building, I had to build a wall. And it was so important for me. And now there's, it's interesting. Now there's a bit of flex, but that first Whew, those those castle walls were really important at the beginning. Um, I'm so curious what you think about that as as a tool, as ways. What I think is that when um, when people have felt like they've had a right to say pretty much anything to you, because we do just just think we can, particularly to people in bigger bodies, but really to to anyone, we just think we can like comment on their food in the office or on on their body um when we see people after a time or um around the dinner table when we go home um we just think that anything is on limits and so to me it comes back to the pendulum again when everyone feels like they've had like uber access to you it really makes sense to me that you have to swing to the other so often and really state your boundaries very firmly with no blacks um as a very protective thing and over time some boundaries will come and swing down in the middle and they'll be more nuanced and they'll be more gray and um but some boundaries are a hard boundary and they're just staying and some boundaries are a, a flex um so we build nuance in over time but it makes sense to me that people you know, if you feel very exposed, that you need to um, put the walls up. Yeah, that pendulum metaphor is so good. It's so true because it did. It felt like my response had to be that dramatic. And I knew I was I was like, God, I'm being really dramatic here. But it was there was no other way. Whereas now I, it's, uh, yeah, I'm not having, the pendulum isn't swinging as broadly because most of my family has learned, you know, what to talk about, what not. And I'm just. Because your tolerance has increased. Yeah. Your tolerance has increased and hopefully their awareness and, um, you know, um, adherence to your boundaries has increased. Yeah. And so that combination allows you to say, actually, these people are trying to be safe for me. Yeah. And I feel more resilient and more rooted in my okayness. Yeah. And, and therefore, you know, we can be human together. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's beautiful. Yeah. I'm so curious about what you hear from patients 
around workplace stuff because workplace is another issue where this really shows up. I don't know if this is as much in the UK as it is um, in the US and a little and certainly here in Canada too, these like workplace wellness initiatives and um, all these ways that and even just even if there's not a workplace wellness initiative, which is, of course, always about diet. Um, but things like eating communally like in a lunchroom and different and and it's hard because they're it's one thing to like it's one thing for me to hang up on my mom (laughs) you know i know she's gonna love me no matter what but it's another thing with a work colleague or work manager or hr which i've actually heard horror stories about hr departments and the things that they have said and done um i'm so curious any thoughts for us on how to just oh workplace diet culture stuff i know it's a whole other episode but the thing i think about i mean this is celebrity actually but the thing i think about is me and myself once which um anytime someone does that kind of oh you're being you're having a a biscuit you're being so naughty and i remember seeing this meme that said um it's a biscuit karen i'm not burning down an orphanage And sometimes having that kind of humor and knowing is really protective. And like, oh God, I know this is a silly thing to say. You know, I'm not being naughty. I'm not burning anything down. I'm having uh, a biscuit with my cup of tea. Or maybe I'm having four biscuits. Heavens, like it's fine. (laughs) Fine, Karen, right? Um, So that's my my jumping off point. Just makes me think about that really funny. Yes, yes. Um, I mean, in general, I mean, I would really love to see a culture develop more of, um, of people just not commenting on other people's bodies or on other people's food intakes because we've got no idea, um, about their relationship with food and body from what we see. Absolutely none. But that is going to come with increased understanding of disordered eating and eating disorders. That's going to come with removing, you know, with with challenging our biases um, and prejudices um, and how we've really normalized access to people in terms of like what we say. Again, that people feel they can say anything. Yeah. Um, and then people are like, oh, well, and then I feel like I can't say anything. I'm like, well, you can actually, but it's just become very normalized. It's a real shorthand way that people um, try and connect with you. You know, I say that diet talk and food talk is such a shorthand. Yeah. It's a social construct, if you like, to connection. And so what people are really saying is that they want to like chat to you. Mm. You know, um, at the checkout or on the desk opposite you, um, people will just reach for that because it's a really easy thing to talk about. Yeah. But hopefully we can start to, again, have just like multiple options of there are other things we could talk about. I could tell you about this great show I watched last night or I could tell you about this walk I did recently or I could tell you about um, a conversation I had with a friend that was interesting and she told me something interesting. I love that, yeah. Yeah. So again, I'm hearing, I'm hearing a bit of a technique emerge for all these scenarios is, or the way I would frame it. And then you tell me if this feels right for you is like remembering that 
you know, a lot of these are bids for connection. So therefore, I don't need to take it personally. I can therefore, you know, connect to my safety five, stay grounded within myself, and then offer something else as an alternative. Like, I love that if someone, let's say you're in the communal lunchroom and people are talking about food, jumping in with, oh, well, did anyone see the latest, you know, show last night or gosh, too bad about Blue Jays being kicked out of the World Series or whatever. I don't know sports, but like, you know, just um, <laughs> whatever it might be. So almost like a redirect or redirect. So you still get what the underlying need is, which is the connection, but have it not be about diet culture based conversation. Yeah, which is a legitimate boundary. Redirection is just a really legitimate boundary. Yeah. Um, sometimes, again, you want to be explicit. And if if a colleague does it multiple times, you know, it might be a case where you have to take them aside and be like, I really, it's not helpful for me to focus on numbers and food being good and bad. So, like, if you need to do that, that's fine. But I just really need you not to do it around me. Beautiful. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so yeah and I think that that boundary can happen anywhere and it is going to feel vulnerable to state your needs mm -hmm. um, but your needs have value and what I would love is for people to sometimes not worry so much about keeping the peace because actually what they're doing is keeping the peace for everyone around them and inside them mentors. yeah um, yeah. So not everyone else gets to have the peace. And actually you can make someone feel uncomfortable. You can challenge someone in their relationship with um, food. You can send them the Angela Lansbury of, um, episode of Maintenance Phase, which I often describe <laughs> on ramp for people. You know? That's a good, that's, it is, it is. I never thought of it, it that is. way. Yes, it because is. It's just like a really stealth, um, everyone loves Angela Lansbury. Everyone loves Murder, She Wrote. And then, um, <laughs> and then they're introduced, so it's not too confronting. Yeah, yeah. So that's what I like. You talk about food um, as being good and bad if you need to, but it doesn't work for me. So I just need you not to do it around. Yeah, beautiful. Oh, I love that. Yes, yes, yes. Oh, Vicky, so much wisdom. I feel like I'm learning so much from you. I want to bring us to back to you, back to how you live your fat joy. How do you stay connected? How do you turn towards joy? And, you know, because I imagine like the work that you do is all about helping people be more human because they've been made to feel less human. So how do you not let that take over and how do you stay human and connected to joy i do really try not to be finished um and to stay um learning so like i do really love the term fat elder and i really love the privilege of doing that for some people but i also know that i walk in footsteps myself you know so when i need to i turn to my fat elders i turn to um to the books that helped me 10 years ago that still helped me now I turn to the music I love um and the the films I love the books I read you know just the things that for me are rooted in an affirmation of my identity because I really you know I think about joy for me it is fat joy right it's it's I can't imagine 
this part of myself that I love so much now that I that has been hard fought for. My fatness has been hard fought for and hard won, and my acceptance of myself has been um, didn't come to me easily, not in this world. So I'm gonna like splash around in it every day. Yes. It's like a bird bath of fat joy. It is, it is. And so, you know, when I think about fat joy, it's about, well, I want to I want to see um, art that celebrates the body that looks like me. I want to read books that celebrate bodies that look like me. I want to immerse myself in my culture and my community um, and, and give and receive from that. Um, so a lot of my joy comes from being fat, um, out loud, um, being fat in connection with others. Um, that's the that's the truth of it. And then I, you know, I love to cook. I love to feed people. I love to swim in the ocean, in the sea. Um, and that feels again like a reclamation. I'm turning up every day in a swimsuit, and I'm not worrying about numbers, not worrying about laps anymore, not doing any of that anymore. I'm just turning up it's turning cold now i'm so happy this is always better for me when it's freezing cold and um i'm just being in my body as a you know i'm being safe to myself yeah yeah oh those are all such beautiful ways to stay connected to the joy and the fat joy Thank you, Vicki. This has been such a beautiful conversation. I feel like I've learned a lot. I feel like I'm going to take a lot of what you said and continue to integrate it deeper within me as well. Thank you. Oh, thank you. I'm so glad. It's been really special to connect. Before we go, I'd like to read a poem because poetry can reach our hearts in a different way. Poems can have us feel in a different way. And that's what this podcast is about, expanding our hearts, deepening our empathy, and inviting in joy. So each week, you get a new poem. This poem came to me through Vicki Bellman, who talks about the impact this poem had on her in the episode. It's called When the Fat Girl Gets Skinny, and it's by Blythe Baird. Um, content warning for this poem, for eating disorders, the word obesity, anti-fat bias, and intentional weight loss. Um, I find this poem deeply powerful and also very deeply reflective and accurate of what diet culture does. The year of skinny pop and sugar-free jello cups, we guzzled vitamin water and vodka toasting to high school and survival, complementing each other's thigh gaps, trying diets we found on the internet, menthol cigarettes, eating in front of a mirror, donating blood, replacing meals with other practical hobbies like making flower crowns or fainting, wondering why I hadn't had my period in months or why breakfast tastes like giving up or how many more productive days I could have spent my time today besides Googling the calories in the glue of a U.S. envelope. 
watching America's Next Top Model like the gospel, hunching naked over a bathroom scale shrine, crying into an empty bowl of cocoa puffs because I only feel pretty when I'm hungry. If you are not recovering, you are dying. By the time I was 16, I had already experienced being clinically overweight, underweight, and obese. As a child, Fat was the first word people used to describe me, which didn't offend me until I found out it was supposed to. When I lost weight, my dad was so proud, he started carrying my before and after photo in his wallet. So relieved, he could stop worrying about me getting diabetes. He saw a program on the news about the epidemic with obesity, and he's just so glad to finally see me taking care of myself. If you develop an eating disorder, when you are already thin to begin with, you go to the hospital. If you develop an eating disorder, when you are not thin to begin with, you are a success story. So when I evaporated, of course, everyone congratulated me on getting healthy. Girls at school who never spoke to me before stopped me in the hallway to ask how I did it. I say, I am sick. They say, no, you're an inspiration. How could I not fall in love with my illness, with becoming the kind of silhouette people are supposed to fall in love with? Why would I ever want to stop being hungry when anorexia was the most interesting thing about me? How lucky it is now to be boring. The way not going to the hospital is boring. The way looking at an apple and seeing only an apple, not 60, or half an hour of sit-ups is boring. My story may not be as exciting as it used to, but at least there is nothing left to count. The calculator in my head finally stopped. I used to love the feeling of drinking water on an empty stomach, waiting for the coolness to slip all the way down and land in the well. Not obsessed with being empty, but afraid of being full. I used to be proud when I was cold in a warm room. Now, I am proud. I have stopped seeking revenge on this body. This was the year of eating when I was hungry without punishing myself. And I know it sounds ridiculous, but that shit is hard. When I was little, someone asked me what I wanted to be when I grew up, and I said, small. Thank you for joining me today. My hope is that you're feeling a little less alone and a little more seen. So until the next episode, you can find me on Instagram at fatjoy.life, on the website at www.fatjoy.life, and on Patreon at patreon.com slash fatjoy. Please don't forget to check out the show notes for how you can connect with my amazing guest and for the links to the poem. All right, lovely. I am sending you off with my wishes for an abundantly fat joy day. Talk again soon.